Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hello, everyone. And we have a guest episode this week. Not that many moons ago, I was searching the interwebs for exciting new podcasts to while away the hours and I came across Philip Rowe talking about theatre. Now, I have never seen a Greek play, really. My only contact with them is that classic joke, Euripides, and you buy another pair. Well, I can tell you, I was hooked, and I am now fully up to date with his podcast. I have to say that if you do happen to meet an ancient Greek playwright, watch yourself. They're a pretty grim lot. Anyway, going to see one is now on the bucket list for when lockdown and treatments are over, inspired by Philip. Philip is clear, insightful, authoritative and a tremendous narrator. I recommend him heartily unto you. I invited Philip to come on to the podcast so that A, he could tell us about Kit Marlowe and so that B, you would be inspired to go and listen to his podcast. And now, over to Philip. Hello everybody. My name is Philip and I produce the History of European Theatre podcast, a more or less chronological history of the development of theatre. Theatre had its formal start in the crucible of the Theatre of Dionysus in ancient Athens some three millennia ago, and it hasn't stopped developing since. By looking at the plays and the people who created them, the theatres and other performance spaces, and the people who came to see plays and the society they lived in, I believe we can get a better understanding of what the theatrical art meant to people how it was changed by them, and how, at some very special moments, it changed them. That's my grand aim for the podcast. So far, I've discussed the ancient Greeks with their love of dark, brooding tragedy, bloody revenge and fickle gods. Those original tragedies have influenced theatre and storytelling ever since, and the poets of that age, Aeschylus, Sophocles and Euripides, still tower over Western culture. I've covered the sharp social satires and comedies by Aristophanes and Menander, written in the days when democracy was getting established and there was no concern for the niceties of slander and libel laws. Currently, the Romans are centre stage, as I follow how theatre survived and then thrived against the other better-known popular Roman entertainments in the circus and at the games. And coming up in my third season will be how drama survived the fall of the Roman Empire and developed in the medieval period. So, if you have an interest in theatre and some history, please do come and join me at the History of European Theatre podcast. But for now, I've shifted my gaze to Elizabethan England, one of the most exciting times in the history of theatre, but not as you might expect to Shakespeare, but to his contemporary Christopher Marlowe. The story of his short life and mysterious death gives us a fascinating glimpse into the highest and lowest elements of Elizabethan society, and the way in which that society was changing 
changes that were driven by religion, education and not a little ambition. heard of Christopher Marlowe, perhaps in the shortened form Kit Marlowe in the Elizabethan way. If you have, then you probably know only two things about him, that he was a playwright but not as well known as Shakespeare, and that he was killed in a tavern brawl. If you know a little more, then it's probably that there is a portrait of him. Well, at least some of that is true. He was a playwright, but in his time regarded by many as something of a wunderkind, and way ahead of that fledgling Shakespeare. He was killed at a young age in mysterious circumstances, but it wasn't in a tavern or in a street brawl as some later stories retold. There is a portrait that's said to be him, and there's a good chance that it is, but we can't be sure. That painting was discovered in 1953 in a pile of junk in the Master's Lodge of Corpus Christi College, Cambridge. Marlowe was a student there from 1580 to 1587 and the painting carries the inscription suggesting that the sitter is aged 21 and that the year is 1585, so the dates fit. Having your portrait painted as a student was common practice, many of them from the period still line the walls of the college to this day. But it wasn't an insignificant financial outlay and Marlowe, the son of a shoemaker, was attending the college on a scholarship, so such expense seems a bit odd. In the picture, the young man is wearing a sumptuous velvet doublet that surely would have broken the rules about wearing excessive apparel that the poorer classes were subject to in the Elizabethan University. So, there's much to suggest it isn't Marlowe, and yet I can't resist the idea that it is. His arms are folded, suggesting concealment, and his eyes are focused slightly to the left, with a look of confidence, maybe even arrogance, that suggests this was a young man on the make a man who thought he knew where he was going. It's not evidence for sure, and the Latin text on the painting doesn't help. It says, That which feeds me destroys me, which is so prescient that you have to think it was added later, however contemporary it looks. However, the fact that the painting was removed from public view and forgotten about works in its favour for the idea of it being Marlowe. Even before his death, his reputation outside of his plays was not that good, and the official version of the events around his death and the popular stories that were generated only helped it to sink lower. It's therefore quite plausible that the removal of the portrait was a cleansing act by the college master, erasing the memory of a fallen student. The biggest surprise is perhaps that it wasn't destroyed completely. Marlowe's short life and violent death were perhaps not typical of an Elizabethan life, but it does tell us a lot about Elizabethan society and how, amongst the governing classes, politics, religion and deception went hand in hand. And how does playwright and shoemaker's son Kit Marlowe fit into that? In answering that, we also get a glimpse of the underbelly of Elizabethan society and an idea of how closely it was involved with the grandest people of the day. In this case... The best place to start is at the end of the story. The setting is Deptford, a town on the Thames outside the city of London. The date is Wednesday 30th of May, 1593. Deptford was a thriving little place, with shipbuilding and oyster netting providing most of the employment in the area. Lodging houses also provided a lucrative trade for some, especially in 1593 when the plague was raging in the city. 
In May alone that year, there were 2,000 recorded plague deaths in the City of London, so the less crowded, fresher areas outside the walls were preferred by those who could afford it and arrange the move. The linear town of Deptford, sitting between the river and open fields, offered sanctuary from the miasma in the city, where you could see people dying in the street, hear of friends dead before you even knew they were ill, and know that in the houses in your own street, your neighbours' bodies could be rotting away, unattended, denied even a decent burial rite. The official report by the coroner, completed two days after Marlowe's death, is in the public record, and is brief and functional. The coroner in question was William Danby, coroner to the royal household. The stabbing would have been considered a fairly routine incident, but for its location. The Queen's Palace at Greenwich was only a mile away, placing the incident officially within the verge, a term that meant within 12 miles of the body of the Queen, and as such, Danby was obliged to handle the legal investigation. For the inquest, a jury of 16 local men was gathered at the site of the incident, and the victim's body was present. As recorded by the coroner, the events on the day of the incident were as follows. In the mid-morning, four men met in a house in Deptford. They held private conversations in a room until midday, where they took some lunch. In the afternoon, they walked in the garden of the house and continued their conversation away from the earshot of others. Later, about six o'clock, they came back to the room and took some supper. After eating, Marlowe laid on the only bed in the room while the other three men sat at a table on a bench. Then an argument started up about, quote, the sum of pence owed for the food and the drink, with Marlowe and one of the other men, Ingram Fraser, exchanging, quote, malicious words. Fraser was sitting between his two companions, Nicholas Skerris and Robert Poley, with his back to Marlowe. As Marlowe suddenly leapt from the bed, Fraser was unable to move, wedged as he was between his companions. Marlowe grabbed Fraser's dagger from his belt and hit him around the head with it. The coroner notes two slashing flesh wounds more than two inches long and half an inch deep on Fraser's head. The implication is that these wounds were inflicted with the pommel of the dagger, not the blade, so intended to hurt, not kill. Fraser, according to the account, tried to defend himself, but was still hampered by the bulk of Skerris and Foley on either side. In the words of the inquest, And so it befell in that affray, that the said Ingram, in defence of his life, with the dagger aforesaid to the value of twelve pence, gave the said Christopher a mortal wound above the right eye, to the depth of two inches, and to the width of one inch. The coroner's final note is that Marlowe died instantly. A dagger through the eye and into the brain tends to have that effect. Fraser, Skerris and Poley didn't flee the scene and were present at the inquest. A murderer could be sure of the death penalty in Elizabethan England unless self-defence could be proved. The fact that all three stayed to be arrested suggests that they were confident that they would prove self-defence. With two witnesses, this was probably a safe enough bet. Any investigation of the circumstances of a crime was not primarily evidence-based at the time, but would have given weight to the evidence of those present as the events unfolded. The jury came to the almost inevitable conclusion that Fraser had killed Marlowe in self-defence. Marlowe's body was buried in an unmarked grave in the local churchyard, later the same day. Hopefully some of his London-based friends had heard the news and were present at his internment. Fraser was held in prison until the formal wheels turned and the conclusion of the inquest was confirmed. At the end of June, a formal pardon was issued by the Queen on the basis of self-defence and Fraser was a free man. 
and to the Elizabethan eye, that was that. An event not so strange in the boisterous and sometimes brutal world of the young men about town. And if there had been such a thing as an investigative journalist in Elizabethan London, they would have uncovered a previous knife-fighting incident involving Marlowe that took place not so long ago. He might have been called a hothead, some might even hint at rumoured unnatural practices, some at his Catholic sympathies, but they would have all have been repeating hearsay and innuendo. His recent success as a playwright didn't put him in high regard either. Records pertaining to him refer to him as a scholar, not as a playwright. We have to remember that the modern theatre was only just establishing itself. The first theatre, the Red Lion, was built in Whitechapel, just east of the City of London, in 1567. At the time, Whitechapel was mostly open farmland, and the theatre, however purpose-built, was little more than a high stage with trapdoors, a tower, and an enclosing wall set in a field. Although it seems that it was commercially successful, it was away from the city and probably really struggled to attract a winter audience, when similar entertainment could be seen in the slightly more comfortable setting of courtyard inns in the city presented by the many troops of travelling players. The first proper permanent playhouse, simply called the Theatre, was built in Shoreditch in 1576. Laws to curb the plague forbade theatre building in the city, hence the construction of the theatre outside the walls, even if the cheaper rents in Shoreditch were not enough of an attraction. Shoreditch was known for its gambling dens and brothels, but became London's first theatre district when the Curtain Theatre was built nearby the following year. The theatre had a turbulent history from the start, thanks to constant disputes between its two owners, until in 1598 they fell into a serious quarrel with their landlord. Their solution was to dismantle the theatre and use the timbers to build a new theatre on the site they had found near the Thames, near the old Bridewell Palace, then being used as an orphanage and home for fallen women. The site was still outside the city, in an area with a not dissimilar reputation to Shoreditch. They named their reconstructed theatre the Globe. The story of the early Elizabethan theatres is a fascinating one that I will be covering on the History of European Theatre podcast when I get to that period. But for now, in the story of Marlowe, it just serves to show how young the established permanent theatre was. Marlowe's first play, Dido, Queen of Carthage, based on his first great literary love, Ovid, was written sometime between 1584 and 1587, with his much more successful efforts coming hard on its heels. The dates are a little uncertain, but there was Tamburlaine, about 1587, and, due to its popularity, a hastily written sequel in 1588. Then The Jew of Malta, probably 1589, and Dr Faustus in 1591. Edward II in 1592, and The Massacre of Paris in 1593. The first play, Dido, which was co-written with Thomas Nash, was first performed by the Children of the Chapel, a troupe of boy actors. All the subsequent plays are recorded with performances at the growing number of London theatres in the years before his death and after. However, playwriting was not considered a profession, and theatre generally battled a reputation that was conflated with the lowest rungs of Elizabethan society, in stark contrast to the high-flown ambition of some of its best playwrights. Marlowe was certainly one of those, credited as he is with the being the turning point of Elizabethan drama. He introduced blank verse, intricate plots and nuanced characters with psychological depth. But this playwright is a slippery character to get hold of. How can this scholarly, thoughtful young genius be reconciled with the manner of his death and the other accusations levelled at him? 
My imagined journalist would only have to scratch at the surface to get a feeling that something was going on there, and if we just keep digging, we might find the sort of story that sells a few newspapers. Even in the bland coroner's account, there's an air of mystery. The behaviour of Marlowe and his companions is furtive. The question of what the group of men were doing on the day isn't addressed, not even asked, at the inquest. Doesn't it seem strange that Fraser was arguing with Marlowe while seated with his companions? It seems that such questions were an irrelevance to the matter as far as the coroner was concerned, but the value of the murder weapon was somehow significant. So, who were Marlowe's companions? Forensic work in the National Archives by biographers and scholars in the subsequent years have given us some answers, even if sometimes they have to be teased out of obscure records. If we're looking for some indication of the character of the witnesses, then an incident involving Skerris and Fraser at exactly the same time is interesting. The two were involved in a money-lending scheme that bordered on the fraudulent. In 1572, the statute of usury fixed interest rates on loans to a maximum of 10%. To get around this, a lender would not lend money, but some goods that the recipient could then sell on. These schemes were common and not strictly illegal, but they did rely on the desperation or gullibility of those in need of some money. In this case, Skerris was approached by a friend for a loan, but claiming to have no spare cash, he introduced him to Fraser. Fraser also said that he had no ready money to spare, but had a number of guns that he had stored on Tower Hill and were ready for sale, valued at £60. The young friend of Skerris signed the bond for £60 and shook hands on the deal. Conveniently, Fraser also offered to find a buyer for the guns, which he did, but then said they had only realised £30. So now Fraser had loaned £30 and had a signed bond for 60 a nice 100% rate of interest, and he quite probably still had the guns as well. Skerris then persuaded the friend to help him out with a similar debt to Fraser for £4, and he signed a bond for this. In an attempt to get himself out of this increasing debt, the young man then borrowed £200 from, quote, a gent of good worship. The new debt was of a type that allowed for any default to be chased and paid for by seizure of the debtor's goods. So now we can see Skerris and Fraser in less than favourable light, and it's clear that they were in a sort of business relationship and well known to each other. No surprise, then, that they backed each other up when describing the events around the death of Marlowe. In addition, that gent of good worship, who was no doubt recommended to the unfortunate friend by Skerris or Fraser, was Thomas Walsingham, cousin of the Queen's spymaster, Sir Francis Walsingham. Fraser was in the employ of Thomas at the time, and Thomas was also a patron of Marlowe, who'd been at his house in the weeks before his death. All of a sudden, we can see some connections there that were not addressed in the inquest. The role of Skerris in this case seems subservient to Fraser, but he had history too. There's a possible mention of him as a fencer of stolen goods, and with more certainty, as a law student, he was caught on a similar loan scan and only just avoided censure for it. That incident puts him in the company of Matthew Royden, a law student and poet, and Royden was a close associate of Marlowe. So it seems that Skerris, budding crook, also moved on the fringes of the London literary set. We know that Marlowe was in the home of Thomas Walsingham in May 1593, because on the 18th the Privy Council issued a warrant for him to appear before them, and they sent a Queen's messenger to collect him from Walsingham's house in Kent. 
Two days later, the council records show that he appeared as requested, was given bail and instructed to be available for daily attendance if requested. The council's interest in Marlowe had been bubbling away for some time. It was not his fame as a dramatist that interested them, but his reputation as an outspoken atheist. Comments about his views had already appeared in print in earlier years as he became more well-known for his playwriting and were about to be enlarged on by government informers and others, most notably his former roommate and fellow dramatist, Thomas Kidd. The late 1580s and early 1590s were a fractious and worrying time in London. Not only were there regular visitations of the plague that exacerbated unemployment and inflation at home, but abroad the war in the Low Countries was dragging on and the threat from Spain was ever-present. In oft-repeated fashion, the blame for the hard times was lobbed at London's immigrant community that had recently grown thanks to the unrest on the continent. They still only made up about 2% of the city population, but were concentrated in particular areas and perceived by struggling merchants and shopkeepers as the cause of their problems. On the other hand, the government saw them as genuine refugees, bolstering the Protestant ranks in London's population, and then Parliament voted to extend their resident alien privileges. There was only one dissenting voice in that debate, the voice of Sir Walter Raleigh, and that's not the last time that he comes into this story. The populace were not pleased, and at Easter 1593, a placard calling for apprentices to rise up against the immigrants was nailed up. Others followed, and the threat of violent unrest was taken so seriously that a commission, including two of Sir Francis Walsingham's agents, was set up to determine the authorship of the incendiary placards. On the 5th of May, another placard appeared, this time in Broad Street, on the wall of the Dutch churchyard. The content was a comic but vitriolic poem with a catchy last couple of lines, the kind of thing that could be turned into a chant in a demonstration. It was signed Tamburlaine. That and the lines in the poem that referred to Machiavellian merchants and Like the Jews you eat all the bread brought Marlowe's well-known play and the recent Jew of Malta into the minds of the commission. A reference to the Paris Massacre, where French Protestants had been slaughtered less than a year earlier and which Marlowe had brought to the stage in lurid fashion, sealed the Privy Council's interest. It seemed to point to Marlowe being the author, but he wasn't the only concern. A wide-ranging edict was issued, authorising for any suspects to be rounded up, have papers seized and be questioned. If necessary, such questioning could include the use of torture. It's not clear why Thomas Kidd was targeted to be picked up. He was known for his play The Spanish Tragedy and the connection of Tamalo may just have been enough of an excuse. No other details suggest that he had controversial views, but he was charged as the author of the Dutch churchyard poem. In later years, he told how he was tortured and subject to, quote, many sufferings. Later, he believed that he was a victim of an informer. Under torture, he protested he was true to the Queen and would tell all that he knew of the unrest if he knew anything, but he didn't. Kidd's papers were reviewed, and among them were found a three-page handwritten document that Kidd described as fragments of a disputation, authored by Marlowe. The council saw them as writings that denied the divinity of Christ, and Marlowe's name had come up again. At the time, the council saw such views as atheistic, a serious charge, whereas later scholars now think they were actually quotations from an earlier work that was arguing against the Unitarian heresy that denied the Trinity. In the course of that repudiation, large parts of the original heresy are quoted. Kidd protested that they were Marlowe's papers that had become mixed with his, and he was believed. 
Perhaps someone in the council remembered that Marlowe had been accused of atheistic views a few years before in a pamphlet penned by Robert Greene as he was dying. Green is now best remembered for his jibe at Shakespeare as an upstart crow, but was a well-known essayist, playwright and poet in his day. In any event, the council dug into Marlowe further and called for on professional informer Richard Chumley for evidence. He's quoted of saying that Marlowe is able to show more sound reasons for atheism than any divine in England is able to give to prove divinity, and that Marlowe had read such atheistic tracts to Sir Walter Raleigh in the company of others. Kidd then added to this picture, perhaps picking up on what his interrogators wanted to hear, saying Marlowe was always happy to argue about God's divinity and the human failings of Christ. That was enough for the council to call for Marlowe's presence before them. As Marlowe waited in London, another government informer, Richard Baines, wrote a report on Marlowe for the council which painted the picture of a man who only too willingly broadcast his heretical thoughts, concluding that, quote, so dangerous a mouth should be stopped. So why were these government informers interested in painting Marlowe in such a bad light? To get to that question, we have to understand something of the period in general, and Marlowe's lifetime, short as it was, is a useful focus in that respect. He was born in February 1564, just two months before William Shakespeare. They were actually baptised on the same day. Elizabeth was only five and a half years into her reign, but had moved quickly to reverse the religious policies of her half-sister, whose attempts to bring the country back to Catholicism earned her the nickname Bloody Mary. Elizabeth espoused tolerance while establishing the Church of England with the Act of Uniformity in the first full year of her reign. Tolerance meant that she realised that there were powerful noble families, especially in the Midlands of England, who still held deep-seated feelings for the Catholic cause. She tried to balance this with the Protestantism that she encouraged, which was of a Calvinistic bent, not quite the Puritism of later years, but unforgiving nevertheless. Attending church on Sunday was obligatory, and failure to do so could result in fines and social stigma. Catholic priests were still hunted and tried and executed if caught, their promotion of the Catholic religion being an act of treason under the Elizabethan regime, where politics and religion were closely intertwined. For many, the conversion to Protestantism was a show, and private Catholic masses were held in secret. The problem for the Catholic was that the prosecution and therefore shortage of priests meant that they could not practice their faith fully, and when they could, it was at huge personal risk to all concerned. And let's just think for a moment on what this means for the ordinary people. Under Elizabeth's father, Henry VIII, they had gone willingly or been persuaded, cajoled and forced into the new Protestant religion, focused mainly on the break from Rome. That had been maintained in the short reign of his son Edward and the even shorter reign of his chosen successor, Lady Jane Grey, but suppressed with vigour by Mary when the population was commanded to return to the Catholic fold. Elizabeth's reversal of all that Mary stood for was expected, but at the time, who could be sure it would last? No one knew Elizabeth would reign for nearly 50 years, and given events since the death of Henry, all bets for any such longevity must have been off. Who could say that in a few years' time all of this wouldn't be reversed again, perhaps with, when the country was under the rule of France or Spain? For the vast majority of the population, compliance in body, if not in mind, was the order of the day, with the increasingly theological arguments about the nature of the English Protestantism being of little concern to them. 
For most, the overriding concern of life was where the next meal was coming from, or how good the harvest that year was going to be, not what flavour of God you worshipped. These were turbulent years, when what you thought and believed could cost you your liberty and even your life. In the uncertain times of the transfer of power to a new monarch, and particularly at that time with a woman as the head of state, it's perhaps no surprise that it was a time of deep suspicion. Oh, and there was always, always the threat of plague every summer. Plague that could take your loved ones off with no notice and decimate families, streets, even towns and villages in a few short weeks. That, of course, was interpreted as a retribution from God for some lack of piety and the population were exhorted to double down in their religious observances to keep the pestilence from their doors. It was in that milieu that Christopher's father John had come to Canterbury from Kent, searching to be engaged as an apprentice to a shoemaker. He arrived at a town in a state of trauma. As a seat of the religious head of the Church of England, Canterbury had taken the blunt of religious reforms and counter-reforms. Henry had trashed the shrine of Thomas a Becket and closed the abbeys. Mary had burnt Protestants in the city with enthusiasm, and disease was always present. Plague and influenza had reduced many city populations so much in recent years that rules on the movement of apprentices had been relaxed. Marlowe Senior may have chosen Canterbury just as a religious centre, or maybe because there were distant relations in the area. Marlowe and its variations was a common name in these parts, and relations, however distant, might provide a local support network for those living in a state close to poverty. Having established himself as apprentice to a shoemaker, he found his acceptance to the guild accelerated when his master died of the plague four years later. He'd married and his wife Catherine bore children every couple of years for the next decade and a half. The expanding family somehow scraped by. There were local court records showing that John was involved in chasing debt and being chased for debt, but they kept their heads above water one way and another, with the grind of daily work and child-rearing broken only by the grief of children who died at alarmingly frequent intervals. By the age of four, all Christopher's older siblings had died and he was the only boy in the family. Marlowe Senior only ever employed one apprentice, who didn't last long, suggesting either that the business was not thriving or that he was a difficult boss, maybe both. He started to take on legal clerical work to supplement his income, acting as a scribe and witness to legal matters. There was a growing trade in lower-level legal practice, as the growing subclass of literate craftsmen turned to the law for satisfaction more and more. And John now had good reason and enough ambition to make sure that his only surviving son had a good education. Christopher would have started that process in the local school aged six and learned the basics of reading and writing. Schools like his were housed in whatever suitable building was available and most likely taught by the local parish priest. Learning was by rote and based on a syllabus established by Henry VIII and confirmed by Elizabeth. The ABC focused on alphabets, vowels and basic reading, with other learning coming from a catechism and the book of private prayer. Following completion of the elementary school, Marlowe went to the local grammar school, where some of his fees at least were paid in kind by his father. The headmaster seems to have had several arrangements with fathers of his pupils to take part payment in the goods of their trade. There, young Christopher studied Latin and more grammar and catechism, but now this was based on approved works of more recent authorship that avoided the Catholicism inherent in the elementary school primers that were written before the Reformation. 
Marlowe was in the first generation that used these new works focused on Roman usage. So rather than the works of St Thomas Aquinas, they introduced the young scholar to Cicero, Ovid, and the comic plays of Terence, which were preferred for their straightforward style of Latin. The students were expected to rote-learn passages from classical literature, Latin verb forms and grammatical constructions, but not to think too deeply about their content. The routine was both intense and probably mind-numbingly boring. It was designed to instil obedience, deference to those in authority and respect for elders and betters. But as a life like Marlowe's was to show, this education, for some at least, resulted in the desired outward show of obedience, but it didn't curtail free thought entirely. By the fifth form, the students were learning the principles of Roman oratory and poetry, taking their models from Ovid, Cicero and Virgil, with poetry being part of the teaching of grammar and oratory teaching the basics of constructing and responding to an argument. Marlowe's school in Canterbury had a tradition of sending the best pupils to Oxford or Cambridge University, where these basic skills for learning were considered absolute essentials. In 1580, Marlowe went to Cambridge on a Parker Scholarship. This had been established by Archbishop Parker some years earlier and supported three years of the four-year BA course. He left Canterbury in December, making the 70-mile journey in about three days by hitching rides on farm and merchant vehicles from town to town. His lodgings were in the college quadrangle, along with the master's lodge, hall, kitchens and the buttery. It's the buttery records of eating expenses that give us the pattern of Marlowe's behaviours at college. He'd arrived at university early, probably to try to get ahead with the learning, and had not yet received his allowance for attendance under the scholarship. His first meal cost him a frugal one penny. But later in the month, he was spending three shillings a week on food and drink. It's not clear how he funded this, but one suggestion is that he's one of the many students who assisted workmen building the new college chapel. The college regime was rigorous. Early prayers, six days a week, were followed by lectures on logic and philosophy. In the afternoon, Greek grammar and translation was followed by rhetoric and training in the construction and defence of a thesis. Lectures and lessons went on well into the evening. As his degree studies progressed, the focus became more on disputation and argument, culminating in an exam period where four disputations had to be performed in front of examiners. Marlow achieved his BA in the middle ranks of the year, which may have been more to do with his social class than his skills, but it did open an option for continuing study for an MA degree under the scholarship programme. But there was a glitch. Initially, the award of Marlow's degree was withheld by the college authorities. During his BA, Marlow's attendance records had shown some gaps. Now, this was not unusual in itself. Scholars often took time off from studies for financial and other reasons and were allowed to return as long as they had proof from a suitable person that they had continued to study during their absence from college. Marlowe was away for several weeks in the summer of 1585 and the spring of 1586 and these absences appear to have resulted in his name being mentioned to the Privy Council. The Master of Cambridge had learned of a rumour that Marlowe was, quote, determined to go beyond the seas to Reims. This referred to the English College at Reims that was the centre of Catholic opposition to the English throne. It was the favoured destination of young Catholics as a place to complete their studies, receive ordination and potentially return to England as missionaries. It was also a place that gave birth to plots of more direct action on the state and to the Queen herself. To be labelled as going to Reims was a serious charge. 
It seems that it was this rumour that held up the awarding of Marlowe's degree. It's not clear how the involvement of the council was requested, but presumably it came from Marlowe himself or from his handler. The issue was resolved when the council informed the master that Marlowe, quote, had done Her Majesty good service in matters touching on the benefit of the country, and that he had never intended to remain on the continent. That overt message, the increased spending on his return to college, and the company he kept post-graduation, all suggest that the theory that he was involved in some clandestine work for the government that paid well is a sound one. Monitoring the college at Reims and other expatriate Catholics was considered essential work for the government of the time. There were, after all, real threats from Spain and France and papal bulls that were being interpreted as giving permission for regicide if it led to the restoration of the Catholic faith in England. Elizabeth had established the first English secret service under Sir Francis Walsingham and records show its budget increased year on year as agents and handlers were sent to the continent and into the great houses of Catholic families at home. In addition, the great men of state, Lords Burley, Essex, Raleigh and others, ran their own networks of informers and spies to varying degrees. Mary, the Queen's cousin, was a serious rival to the throne. She was held under house arrest since fleeing to England from Scotland, but was still the centre of plots against Elizabeth, intentionally or otherwise, and Walsingham was determined to see her removed. A young, educated man who could be plausibly presented on the continent as a sympathetic Catholic could be very useful as a plant to entice information out of those engaged in plotting against the Queen. What we see from the official records is a very confused picture, where operatives worked on the edge of the law, sometimes without explicit authority for the actions they took. So, who were the genuine Catholics plotting against the state, and who was a spy working to undermine those plans becomes very confusing, to our view at least, and probably at the time too. And it is at the college at Reims that we find Richard Baines, the informer who would later corroborate the view that Marlowe was an outspoken atheist. Baines had entered the college in 1579 after completing an MA at Cambridge. His time at Reims coincided with a period when the Privy Council had asked the, for the entire college to be expelled. The King of France had refused, and it's likely that a more covert strategy was devised as a result. Baines was eventually uncovered as a spy, and under torture declared that he'd only turned against the college during his studies there. But letters in the records suggest that he was in touch with Walsingham from early on, so it seems likely he was sent to infiltrate the college. The confession Baines made is on the record, and the various doctrines he rails against confirming what his captors wanted to hear about his non-conforming sentiments bear a striking similarity to the views he ascribes to Marlowe a few years later. Once the college had a confession, Baines was of little further use to them. The text in Latin was printed and copies smuggled into England to bolster the Catholic cause against the monarchy. Baines was eventually freed to turn up later as Marlowe's accuser. Eventually, Walsingham's infiltration of the Catholic network on the continent paid off. His spies got wind of a plan to assassinate the Queen. A missionary cleric, John Ballard, living disguised in London as a returned soldier, visited Yorkshire to get acquainted with Anthony Babington, scion of a committed northern Catholic family, and generated support from him and other like-minded locals. Unfortunately for all concerned, one of those locals, Bernard Maud, was working for Walsingham. So when Ballard needed a passport to return to France, Maud was able to supply it, with Walsingham happy to let the conspiracy grow 
and to capture as many Papist traitors as possible when the time came. It seems clear that Walsingham's intent was to let the plot run until Mary was implicated, so that the threat of her presence could be permanently removed. Ballard returned from the continent with an exaggerated report of support for the plan to free Mary and raise the English Catholics in rebellion. Babington was persuaded to leave the plot, but keen as he was in his faith, he was more reluctant when it came to regicide. He stalled and then decided he needed to go abroad to confirm the support being offered. To do this, he needed a passport authorised by the Queen, and to get that, he needed the support of someone in court. He turned to Robert Poley, who was officially employed by Walsingham's daughter. Poley encouraged him, and in a rush of enthusiasm, Babington foolishly wrote to Mary with details of the plot. The letter was intercepted, and Walsingham's trap was sprung. The Babington plot led directly to the trial and execution of Mary. This is the world of espionage, plot and counterplot, exaggerated and manufactured fear and uncertainty that it is thought Marlowe became involved with. A university man with some Catholic background was an obvious choice for some undercover work. They had some level of skill with language and were trained to be quick thinking in an argument. An approach to a poor student with an offer of a decent payment for some time out from study and travel was, we can imagine, very exciting. In April 1590, Francis Walsingham died, leaving a power vacuum within government and in the intelligence service in particular. Candidates to take Walsingham's position and establish or reinforce a closeness with the Queen jockeyed for position. Lord Burley, the elder statesman, was a strong candidate, with the work being carried out by his younger son, Robert Cecil. The Earl of Essex, representing the younger faction and already in control of a large intelligence network, also fancied the position, as did Sir Thomas Hennage, Vice-Chamberlain and Walsingham's former number two. The names of Poli, Skerris and others turn up as they try to establish allegiances and work for new potential employers. About the same time, the focus of intelligence work was moving from France to the Low Countries, feeding off the ongoing military campaign there. A letter discovered as late as 1976 shows that Marlowe was in Vissingen, then the English possession of Flushing, in 1592. The details are never as clear as we would like, but it's possible that Marlowe was there and roomed with Richard Baines, the spy from the episode in the College at Reims. As Baines told it to the authorities, Marlowe had persuaded a goldsmith called Gilbert to counterfeit coins and was planning to defect to the Catholic side. Under arrest, Marlowe protested that he was only testing the goldsmith's skills and accused Baines of being equally involved. The three were transported back to England, but only Marlowe and Gilbert were prisoners. Marlowe was interviewed by Lord Burley. Counterfeiting was a treasonable offence and Burley treated these matters harshly. The death penalty could be expected. We don't have the detail of their conversation, but Marlowe was freed without censure. What that implies is that either he was in the Low Countries on government work for Burley or A.N. Other, or Burley saw him as a useful man to have in his debt. Unfortunately, we will probably never untangle the plays and counterplays in this shady world. There is one other significant relationship that feeds into Marlowe's story. Sir Walter Raleigh was certainly known to Marlowe as a fellow poet at least. Marlowe directly replies to a Raleigh poem in one of his own, and they shared many friends in the literary set. Those who later accuse Marlowe over his apparent atheism place him in Raleigh's company as part of his circle, and reading atheist tracts to him in the company of others. 
as this was expected to be believed, we can assume that there was some sort of known association. Raleigh was known for his unconventional views on religious freedoms and had been accused of atheism by others. He was also known to be interested in the occult and had entertained magicians and mystics at his home. By this time, he was no longer the Queen's favourite, having married one of her ladies-in-waiting without permission, and they had spent a spell in the Tower of London for their trouble. After their release, he returned to public life, not in court but as a Member of Parliament, in 1593, so he was still a political operator at a high level, but his star had waned, and he was disliked by the likes of Essex and Burley. When Parliament debated the extension on immigrant rights, it was only Raleigh who stood up in dissent as the body of Parliament approved the motion. It was then that the placards calling for insurrection were posted in the city, and as the authorities investigated, Kidd's papers implicated Marlowe and bring the question of atheism to the fore. Baines, Kidd, Chumley and others then build on that concern and mention the connection to Raleigh, possibly at the prompting of their interrogators working for the council, but possibly also for Essex or Burley, both in the anti-Raleigh camp. After Marlowe's death, Chumley was arrested, and there were letters from Essex to various of his supporters thanking them for interceding for Chumley's release. It seems unequivocal that Chumley was an Essex man. There's little or no firm evidence, but it has been suggested that what we can see there is the building of a case against Raleigh based on suspicion and innuendo, and in the circle of the Elizabethan court that was all that was needed sometimes to bring a rival down. By playing up Raleigh's purported atheism and linking that with an interest in the occult, at the very least he might be forced further out of the Queen's orbit and away from meaningful power, and at best he might end up out of the picture permanently, sans head. Marlowe may just have been a pawn in this great game of the Elizabethan lords, councillors and spymasters. So can we draw firm conclusions about the circumstances of Marlowe's death from this patchwork of information, half-truths and outright lies? In all honesty, probably not. At least, nothing absolutely conclusive. Firstly, it's quite possible that he was killed in a fight over a bill for food and drink. Perhaps there had been more drinking during the day than had been admitted at the inquest, and tempers got heated because of some perceived unfairness in the division of the costs or some other personal matter between these men. It's possible but that explanation leaves a lot of unanswered questions. The alternative possibility presented through the tireless study of obscure Elizabethan records by scholars to whom we owe so much is that these men were known to each other through the Elizabethan spy networks. It's suggested as plausible that they met that day to persuade Marlowe to assist in their plans, which were probably a plan to discredit Walter Raleigh and force him out of any power. If the plan had been for Marlowe to take the blame for the Dutch church placards and to take Raleigh down with him, then something had gone wrong, or looked like it was about to go wrong. The men he was with were Essex men. So was it that Essex was concerned he was about to become implicated in a plot, or that his men thought this was likely? One suggestion is that it was Chumley, working for Essex, who wrote the Dutch churchyard poem that drew Marlowe firmly into the conspiracy. If, after the day-long discussions, Marlowe remained unpersuaded to help, perhaps because of commitments made to Burley and this was going to go badly for Essex, is it possible that these men had instruction from Essex to tie up this loose end permanently? Or maybe that was their decision as the day progressed? Perhaps there is a combination of truths here, where frustration with Marlowe boiled over and in the heat of the moment the dagger worth 12 pence was drawn and thrust into Marlowe's eye. 
men like Poli and Fraser were undoubtedly experienced and ruthless and quite capable of such an act. And Essex would certainly be looking for plausible deniability if his involvement in such sordid business should ever become known. There may be other explanations too. As we weren't in the room, we'll never know for sure. And this tale, interesting as it is, isn't the reason we should or do remember Marlowe. We remember him as a poet and a playwright, and the manner and reasons for his death are merely footnotes. What is important is the plays. Tamburlaine, Dr Faustus, The Jew of Malta and The Massacre of Paris stand up in their own right some 400 years later. Next time you fancy some Elizabethan drama, don't just think of Shakespeare. Try a Marlowe. But go with a strong stomach. His plays are visceral and hard-hitting, but they do also have moments of beautiful poetry and striking imagery. Maybe they're not quite as clever and diverse and as beautifully crafted as Shakespeare, but the great man did acknowledge his debt to Marlowe. In summer 1599, six years after Marlowe's death, the Bishop of London publicly burnt copies of Marlowe's translations of Ovid's elegies. Shakespeare was writing As You Like It at the time, and it seems that the event reminded him of his predecessor and their connection through Ovid. Shakespeare included the following couplet. Dead shepherd, now I find thy sore of night. Whoever loved that loved not at first sight. This quotes a well-known Marlowe poem, making Marlowe the dead shepherd, whose saying, whoever loved that loved not at first sight, is now understood. Later in the play, Touchstone the Fool says, When a man's verses cannot be understood, nor a man's good wit seconded with that forward child understanding, it strikes a man more dead than a great reckoning in a little room. The reckoning in a little room not only echoes a line in The Jew of Malta, but directly references the wordings of the coroner's report into Marlowe's death. As ever with Shakespeare, there are layers of understanding, and the reference would have passed over the heads of many in his audience without recognition. But for those with some knowledge of Marlowe and the circumstances of his death, it would have resonated. He wasn't forgotten by Shakespeare or his literary contemporaries, and the greatest playwright of the age, maybe the greatest playwright of all time, acknowledged his debt to Marlowe, the playwright, the poet, the spy, in perhaps the most fitting way, hidden in a play. My thanks to David for asking me to come on and share that story with you. Please do join us at the History of European Theatre podcast to discover more about how the Roman playwrights and poets influenced the Elizabethan dramatists. As part of the Theatre of Rome season, I already have an episode out that looks particularly at how the works of Plautus, one of the comic playwrights from towards the end of the Republican period, survived the end of antiquity and came to influence Shakespeare and the other Renaissance playwrights. If you fancy starting right at the beginning, you can also find out about theatre in its very earliest forms, even before it got properly started in ancient Greece, which is a history that involves animist rituals, mystic shaman and Egyptian pageants. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, YouTube, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts from. We are also on Facebook and on Twitter at THOETP. If you have any questions or comments, you can also always find me by email at thoetp at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. 
Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.